The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. The practice of the body is so, you know, it, it reveals it. This is not the Dharma talk. Um, it reveals itself so uh, sometimes unexpectedly. Wynne was driving me over, and I was commenting to her, you know, because I'm not used to the temperature, of course. <laughs> I mean, I came from Southern California. But, um, you know, my whole body was, like, like contracted, and yet I wasn't feeling anxious or nervous or, uh, you know, there was no emotional tone to it. It was just a physical <laughs> sensation of cold. <clears throat> and it was just, you know, because usually there's a, there's a connection between the, the feeling state, the mind state, and this was just a physical response. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, it was really interesting to notice that. And you know, all of these things, now I'm going to the Dharma talk, um, all of these things are about a mindfulness practice. So that's where I want to start <clears throat> because that's, you know, it's one of the basics, both the loving kindness and the mindfulness practice that, that we start from. And really to, uh, you probably have heard this over and over again, but to reinforce how these practices are, are one. They're, you know, and that's the, the expansiveness of, of, of how I experience the teachings is that, um, this, this aspect of, of mindfulness is simply meeting the moment for what it is. You know, that, that just that touch is so much an embodiment of loving kindness. Because what we usually do in our unaware state or, or um, uh, unconscious state is we move on our preferences. So we either push something away that we don't like, or we want more of something that we do feel is to be pleasant. And then those things that, that um, we're neutral or indifferent to, our attention just falls away. So in that way, this, this teaching around the second foundation of mindfulness, this push-pull is how we actually change our reality. We're actually not living those 24 hours, those 24 hours, precious hours of our life that is more um, precious than 100 years. And, you know, uh, when I first heard that teaching, I didn't realize that in the Buddha's time, the average lifespan of a human being was around 35. So what he was actually saying was in, in our, you know, state of evolvement is that living 24 hours with mindfulness is more precious than living 300 years. It's quite a statement to make. Because, and and this is again, you know, this is um, my my interpretation or experience of, of meeting the moment for what it is, is this tenderness, this paying attention becomes love. It's what we experience as love. We have all these ideas of what love is when we're in a relationship or, you know, that if you do this for me, I will feel something. I have uh, two grandkids now, and, and even if um, uh, 
even if people have not had kids, we all have been a kid. And we know that, I know really well now, that if I'm not paying attention to that, to Jane or Oliver, they're three and four, um, they're not feeling it from me. You know, if I'm, if I'm speaking to them and my attention is diverted, they're not feeling that, that, that concern and care. And so I think that I experienced that as an adult too. That this aspect of paying attention is how we experience love. This, this not needing it to be any way other than it is. What more can, can unconditional regard, you know, unconditional regard in my early days of practice, I thought was such an elevated ideal that I could never reach. I was always having judgments about things and people and activities. But unconditional regard is just meeting the moment for what it is, not doing anything different, so that we, we can move towards that which will alleviate suffering and and difficulty in our life. So this paying attention as we do it for our own experience, as we sit, as we cultivate this capacity, not just to sit in silence, but to be mindful in our life when we're working, when we're playing, when we're relating, when we're arguing, when we're, you know, um, having a meal. We are actually loving that moment. We are actually allowing that moment to be as it is. This mindfulness also has that, those flavors of loving kindness that we sometimes call, for example, generosity. That fullness of our mind and heart for the moment. That's an act of generosity. Mindfulness in meeting the moment for what it is because it can't hang on to a previous moment is an act of forgiveness. There's the energy of forgiveness that's embedded in as you allow the moment to come up. You have to let go of those previous moments. This aspect of gratitude, of Oh my God, this is the life that's in front of me. Whether it's the 10,000 joys or the 10,000 sorrows, I can hold all of it. I can hold, usually, again, you know, the push-pull, we, we really want our life to be just about the joys. Or when we're caught in some gnarly thing that's happening in our life, we think that our whole life is about that depression or that anger or that difficulty. And it's just not true. Because our life is the range of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. My husband um, just went through a hip replacement, but before that, he went into you know the inability to walk and the pain, the chronic pain. And as a mindfulness practice, it was, it was profound to watch him struggle with, with acute pain. And 
also be aware of the sensations that were beyond the pain. Because that's what helped him hold the continual suffering. That, that to notice the places in his body that didn't hurt, or to notice that there were ebbs and flows to the chronicity of the pain. To realize that, oh, that the pain itself didn't have to become who he was. So, you know, we have, I feel really fortunate to have um, encountered these teachings because they give us a road map. They give us, you know, these guidance, these, these, um, these templates. And one of the templates is this practice of, that we call the itch. You know, it's a physical practice that some of you work with, you know, in, med- in meditation retreats, but you can work, you know, anywhere. Is, is that, you know, what do we usually do when an, an uncomfortable situation like an itch arises? We scratch. Why? Because we want it to go away. Well, what's the other side of the experience of an itch? Do you know? Do you know what the other side of an itch is? Unless you let it be, unless you, you know, you know, you know it's not going to kill you, right? Even if it's a mosquito bite, it's not going to last forever. What's the other side? How many itches in our life do we scratch? Do we, do we, do we obliterate because we don't, we just don't want the unpleasant feelings and we don't know what the other side is. We don't know what we could learn from it unless we navigate through the experience as opposed to around it because we circumvent. We, this is the way that we push away, right? So at East Bay Meditation Center, um, we work with the schools. Um, some of the uh, uh, Dharma teachers work with the schools, and um, it's quite amazing that uh, the public school district and some of the charter schools are in instituting mindfulness practices in in um, you know homerooms, and maybe that's, this is happening in this area um, as well. So I love the story that you know. EBMC is in a very distressed, you know, socioeconomic area, and um, and the school system is stressed too. You know, overloaded classrooms, insufficient funds. So every day for about ten or fifteen minutes, a lot of the homerooms have um, uh, just th- these periods of silence or or uh, sound meditation and. There was this uh, nine-year-old um, that came up to the meditation teacher and said, "Guess what?" And she said, "What? Guess what I learned in mindfulness today? What did you learn?" I learned that when I get angry, I don't have to do anything about it. That's amazing. That's amazing, not just for a nine-year-old, but for me, for us, to be able to remember that over and over again. Tongpulu Sayada, who's one of the Burmese teachers um, that that uh, started a temple in uh, 
Half Moon Bay in California, said, if you know it, if you bring your mindfulness to it, meaning suffering or, or uncomfortable feelings, it will break. If you don't know it, if you're not mindfulness of, you're not mindful of it, it will go round and round and round. That's the unconscious conditioning. So some of you may know that mindfulness is a big thing these days. You know, we were talking that at, at our meal how it's expanding into um, uh, professional areas like the legal professions. It's um, uh, it's uh, huge in psychology and, and in the Silicon Valley, and and it's also making an impact in our military. Um, I don't know if people are aware, but Tim Ryan, who's one of the um, rep House representatives, is introducing a bill to um, create funding for it, which is quite phenomenal. But this is this was an article in the New York Times a little bit. I think about two years ago, about um, how they were training um, um, military personnel who were being redeployed into the Middle East. And the intention was to prevent the post-traumatic stress and the suicidal risk that, that comes from uh, wartime. One, a veteran of several deployments to Iraq, said he was out at dinner the previous night when a customer at a nearby table said he and his friends were being obnoxiously loud. The vet said, at one time, maybe I would have thrown the guy out the window and gone for the jugular. But guided by the two new techniques, he fought the temptation and decided to buy the man a beer instead. Later, the man came over and apologized. This retraining of our mind and our heart is, is what the potential of this practice is. It's noticing the impulse and not needing to act. And that feels to me, at least, is that there's some aspect of, of human evolution that's involved. Because I'm not sure I know of any other species that can notice the impulse and not act. So how is this really transformative? So I, I just want to, um, because of they, uh, this is a week of honoring uh, Nelson Mandela, I want to take a, a story from his life that I feel embodies this noticing the impulse and not needing to act, but that has global consequences. So, um, many of you know, um, Mr. Mandela got, got released um, out of prison in February of 1990 and began four years of negotiation to... Um, it was uncertain at the time whether they were moving towards a democratic uh, form of government or not. And it almost didn't happen. So in the structure of the ANC, um, the second most popular leader was a man by the name of Chris Hani, um, part of the younger generation, very charismatic, um, had the support of many people, you know, and so, and so it was 
uh, Mandela and Hani, who were who, who were the leaders of and and negotiating this very complicated and charged um, uh, conversations around how to create a new government. And in the third year, Hani was assassinated in April, and it almost derailed the entire set of negotiations. He was shot by a right-wing Polish immigrant who was arrested because a white Afrikaner woman reported him. And historically, the assassination was at a tipping point. It could have it could have thrown the entire country into a, a racial civil war, the likes of which had never been seen. And it was not de Klerk, who was the president of the time, that went to address the nation. It was Mr. Mandela. And he said, Tonight I am reaching out to every single South African, black and white, from the very depths of my being. A white man full of prejudice and hate came to our country and committed a deed so foul that our whole nation now teeters on the brink of disaster. A white woman an Afrika of Afrikaner origin risked her life so that we may know and bring to justice this assassin. The cold-blooded murder of Chris Hani has sent shockwaves throughout the country and the world. Our grief and anger are tearing us apart. Now is the time for all South Africans to stand together against those who, from any quarter, wish to destroy what Chris Hani gave his life for, the freedom of all of us. This is a watershed moment for all of us. The decisions and actions will determine whether we use our pain, our grief, our outrage to move forward to what is the only lasting solution for our country, an elected government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Noticing the impulse collectively and guiding it for a whole nation, not needing to act on it, because that is what led to their freedom. No matter what the complications were after the government got formed, and they still are going through their stuff, this is not a linear process. Freedom is not a linear process. But this ask, this ability to be mindful, what will really lead to less suffering in the world. That's the choice point that mindfulness gives us on so many different levels, all the way down to that nine-year-old. That nine-year-old will affect the, his family and, and, and his friends. That's, that redeployed soldier back to the Middle East will bring these techniques back to where they are needed in this world. And so this is where the clarity of our intention, why are we here in practice, becomes so important to remind ourselves that what we do in this moment for ourselves, for this community, is in direct connection with what happens in the world, 
what happens to us. This aspect of intention, um, I was tickled to find out. The word intention comes from the same Latin root as tennis, which means to stretch. It means to stretch and to hold. It means to, to um, um, really, like, what is this life I'm meant to live? And can I remember, which is a quality of sati, a quality of mindfulness, to come back to it over and over again? So, you know, I expanded from, you know, those intentions of just walking into the room tonight to what's your, what's your, what are your intentions in being alive? That, that it's those places of your highest intentions. Because I want to talk a little bit about our aspiration in this life. Aspire. Like I, I, you know, I like to deconstruct things. So part of my deconstruction of that word is how it relates to the word respiration. They come from the same root. Respiration to breathe. Inspire to breathe in. To aspire is to, um, it, the literal translation is rough breathing because it's an uphill movement. It takes effort. You're, you're, you're moving towards something, but it's not, it's not a given. It's, it's not easy. So this aspect of aspiration requires both the intention, that, that internal calling, it requires the energy of what we call effort, you know, the Eightfold Path. And it requires faith. I really appreciate what President Obama says about faith. He says, faith is not just something that you have, it's something that you do. Again, it's the reinforcement that it's, it's, this practice is not passive. It's not just simply noticing our intention and then everything else is okay. It's that we actually have to put the effort and the action behind it in order to achieve what we really aspire in our life. This aspect of aspiration is woven into the Buddha's life, woven into the Buddha's story. So, um, whether we uh, um, resonate with uh, traditional Buddhist cosmology of of many different Buddhas and many different lifetimes, it's really the archetype that that I'm pointing to here. So, you know, supposedly there were 26 Buddhas over eons of time, and and in a previous um, time of a previous Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, there was a practice practitioner called Sumedha, who eventually became Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, who is where, where we've received our teachings from. And um, the story is, is that uh, not unlike um, Siddhartha's story as a, as a child, you know, he, he came from a very... 
uh, privileged background um, of, uh, of royalty, and and something wasn't doing it for him. You know, all of all of the uh, material satisfaction wasn't he wasn't feeling happiness, and so when he inherited his his parents' fortune, he gave it away and became an ascetic, and practiced in isolation um, for a long time, and then um, he heard that. This guy Dipankara was giving teachings, and Dipankara was the enlightened being at that at, at, in that cycle of of, of, um, of teachings. And um, there was this great storm, and and um, there were these puddles and 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 potholes that the the Buddha and his entourage had to walk through. So he. The ascetic, the, the practitioner, Sumedha, felt um, utter devotion to the spiritual path and wanted to make it easy for the Buddha's path to be to be walkable. And, um, and uh, he, he used his body and his hair as a as a covering of the potholes and the and the water, so that the Buddha and his entourage could could traverse it easily and made that aspiration, you know, may I also become the Buddha one day. And, you know, the story goes that Dipankara saw his intention and aspiration and predicted that in a thousand lifetimes he would become the Buddha. A thousand lifetimes. He had to make the aspiration over and over and over again. So what that indicates to me is, is that unless we aspire to be free, we're not going to get there. And I'm not talking about enlightenment. I'm talking about in this moment. Is my intention to be free in this moment? And, you know, I think a, a, a big focus, at least, of, of where, I've, where I've practiced is that these teachings are not just about our own personal experience. They're not just about our own personal awakening or our own personal, to use another word, salvation. It's really about how we practice together, how we collectively elevate our awareness. And do we aspire for that, too? How, how do our communities aspire to be with each other? One of uh, Mr. Mandela's um, uh, preeminent colleagues he referred to every uh, frequently was um, is Aung San Suu Kyi, the um, uh, the woman who really brought democracy back to uh, Myanmar and Burma. And so again, many of you know how her life parallels Mr. Mandela's in the sense that she was also incarcerated for decades and 
and prevented from um, uh, seeing her children grow up, prevented from um, being at the passing of her husband's death, and um, and um, finally, in um, I think um, after after twenty one years, she was um, released. But even in that in that release, um, let's see. Even in that release, the government tried to dismiss her. And um, uh, so this is a little passage. The regime has ignored her repeated, this was early, right after her release, trying to negotiate for um, the democratic um, institution in in our government. The regime has ignored her repeated offers for national reconciliation dialogue. Since releasing her, the junta has dealt with Su Chi by acting as if she didn't exist, expunging mentions of her from the local press and hoping that, despite her busy calendar the huge and the huge crowds that gather wherever she goes, she will somehow dwindle into irrelevance. And her response is, I wish I could have tea with them every Saturday. (laughs) Just a friendly tea. So then the interviewer said, well, what if they turn down a nice cup of tea? And she said, well, we could always try coffee. (laughs) That can you hear the effort and the faith that comes with the intention? You know, that effort doesn't have to be, doesn't have to match energy with energy. There's a strength in the grace that eventually she prevailed, like Mandela. That, that we, that we actually, um, that it is our, the combination of this aspect of effort, and faith that allows intentions to to manifest. Some of you know who Bayard Rustin is. He was the um, gay African-American um, community organizer that was behind the 1964 civil rights with, uh, march with Dr. King, but also many of the um, efforts of that time. And he said... God does not require us to achieve achieve any of the good tasks that humanity must pursue. What God requires of us is that we not stop trying. That we make that effort and have the faith that it is worth our intentions. So, um, I've gone a little over because I wanted to actually pose a question, um, and maybe just because our time is 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 encapsulating, just to turn to one other person in the room, and just to share the Buddha's the Buddha's practice. His whole practice over 
thousands of lifetimes, floated and was supported with this aspect of aspiration. What carries your practice? What aspiration carries your practice? Just sharing what comes up. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. But where do you feel um, your, your practice is leading? What calls you? You know, that spiritual yearning sometimes that we, we mention. What do you aspire to? Just to share a few words and then we'll come back with a large group. But, uh, um, just to turn to one other person and we'll spend, you know, maybe five or six minutes on this. Boy, the energy changed. <laughs> so, just to open it up to the larger group in terms of that energy and just acknowledging it and, and um, just inquiring if there was anything that, that um, was interesting to be shared and if there was anything that you would like to say to the larger group. And the question that I would also pose, which I didn't have a chance to to um, uh, we didn't have a chance to to get to tonight is is um, how does that apply to our experience as a community or communities that when we gather what is our aspiration of living collectively because as as um, as uh, Sumedha found out in that story his his awakening his Buddhahood did not occur in isolation this. This practice isn't about an isolated experience, but but are also our experience connected and interrelated. So, anybody would like to share from their conversation? Thank you, please. Um, well, I started talking up talking about this idea of creating common ground with Keith. Keen, keen, yeah. And uh, for me, this is it's why I walk this earth, is like, how do I co-create radically inclusive, multiracial, multigenerational uh, communities, which is somewhat just connected to this uh, aspiration to notice what's going on in community, being able to highlight that or elevate that in some way. And I think it's just very connected with Kian's, uh aspiration to live, to breathe, and really recognize the uh, common earth that, that we're walking on. And both, I mean, to heal from, you know, history of mistreating each other and, and the earth and just treating it as property and, and really seeing well, how deeply our roots are Inter, inter meshed. So just like, yeah, being able to um, see that as life or meeting each other as a living practice. And yeah, I don't know. So. Thank you. Yep. Beautifully said. Others, what did you exchange? What did you share? Um, I was sharing my next door neighbor here. Um, I've never been here before. Um, and something that I was saying is that I've very much been 
aspiring towards or a word I use is crave, which I think is similar, but I like the word aspire, um, for a more spiritual community in my life. Um, and even just entering the space for those of you who co-create this community, you can have a feel just entering the space that it's something that a lot of energy and attention and love goes into. And it just came up for me that it's Mindfulness, just like really an amazing thing to be able to say, here it is, like here I am in this experience in this spiritual community that I'm craving and aspiring towards, and it, it is the experience I'm having, and also like that that's inspiration for more further action. This is a collective practice, too, <laughs> to be able to speak to the larger group. I know that there's a, sometimes there's a, a leap of faith and effort. But whatever, one of the things that my, um, one of the things my father, who was a teacher, always used to tell me is, is that if, um, if people are, are speaking their own experience, they're probably not only teaching each other, but also naming an experience also happening in the room. It's not just happening with us. So what is shared in the larger group has resonance in that way. Please. I think the importance of my practice for me is that I come, well, it's all issue of trauma and abuse. It's been something that's been over multiple generations. Um, and I, I really had a vivid uh, remembrance of it because I went with some of the members of this community to see 12 years of slave. Uh, and it was, there was no way to like experience that in a sort of a rational, distant way. But uh, I'm just so aware of the fact that uh, we have experienced abuse and trauma that's never been really named and healed. Mm. So the value of the practice for me is that it's giving me uh, the tools, it's not the right term, but to like really make uh, a decision about how I respond and to be more what my vision is for what I want and uh, what I want is uh, to like really act from that place of recognizing that I'm really around relatives and that the social structures and behaviors has taught us that our identities are something that are either fortresses or weapons. And 
and we have the choice of having those identities be riches or a bomb to ourselves and to one another because of the profound interconnections of all life. So when I have these feelings of fear or anxiety, I feel like I've got the space to like notice it and let it go. And most of the time, it really does make sense and to see more deeply of what's actually going on, what reality is. So, I've, I think I've been coming here since, I don't know, 04 or 05, and I believe I've gotten stronger, more centered, and more empowered to try and be a presence that promotes healing and community. So, lots of gratitude. Thank you so much. to that aspiration, which sometimes we don't pay attention to, right? We're not, it's, it, we're not always paying attention to um, our intentions for being in the world, and that's why we can be, that's why we can sort of default to unconsciousness so quickly. Um, but as we, as we turn our attention over and over again, that's, the details perhaps is what gets revealed. Um, 
in that process. Thank you. I'm just aware of time, and um, I know that that um, there's some announcements to be made, but I just really want to appreciate um, the invitation to being here, and just gratitude for what you've you've all created um, here, because it really um, uh, I feel that aspiration here. I really appreciate it. It's so. I mean, this is the this is the aspect that the Buddha was talking about being precious. I mean, how many places can you talk about aspiration in your life and feel safe and supported in doing so? You know, with people you probably don't know that well. I mean, you know, the details of of your life. I mean, can you talk about it in your workplace? Or, I mean, I'm not sure I could really talk about it with my mom. <laughs> And have her really get it. So it's really, it's beautiful. And really to appreciate that, that ability to do so. And, um, so many blessings until our next time together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.